0: well good morning Uh, good morning to you watching online as well Um, I I think every person uh, if you grew up with a relationship with your grandparents I I think you have a uh, good memory of uh, their homes Uh, I don't know if it's just me but I, I remember so many distinct details about my grandparents homes when I was a child uh, I remember, for example, my grandparents on my father's side. I, I remember like in vivid detail what their basement was like where uh, it was kind of a fixed up basement. And that's where all the kids and the cousins would uh, hang out on holidays and stuff. I, I remember the pool table. I never played pool down there, but I got my fingers crushed like a thousand times from like me and my cousins whipping the balls across it at each other. Uh, the stained glass light that was above it. Uh, I remember what their couch looks like. Uh, one time I, I sat on a piece of pizza that was on a plate that was on their couch. I just sat on it for a, a picture. That was awesome. Um, I, I remember what their uh, their... Uh, the kitchen looked like and right where I was when I asked my grandma if I could have a stick of butter to eat and she said no surprisingly but she did compromise and she gave me a spoonful of butter uh, I, I remember my other grandparents house on my mom's side they lived in Florida when I was young and uh, right outside Daytona and I, I remember like every room of that house I remember the sunroom where I would try to catch lizards unsuccessfully most of the time I remember their front porch, just like every little uh, detail of that house. And uh, there's one thing uh, that I remember very clearly about uh, my grandparents' house in Florida is this little sign that they had above their TV that asked the question. uh, It said, if Jesus was in the room, would he watch this program with you? Uh, What a thought-provoking question. As a kid... It was really convicting. Uh, I remember always thinking, like, there's no way Jesus would watch this with me. Because as a kid, my understanding of Jesus was mainly centered on rules. Uh, I was pretty sure that Jesus followed the same uh, uh, movie rating system that we follow. Like, uh, if it was rated G, yes, Jesus would watch that with you. Uh, If it was PG-13, as long as you were 13 and there was no nudity and they didn't say like the F word, he would watch that with you. Uh, If it was R, it was straight from the devil. And uh, it's not like I was watching the worst movies ever, uh, but my favorite movie when I was younger was Braveheart. And I I didn't think Jesus would approve of that (laughs) or let alone watch it with me. Uh, it sounds silly, but that's kind of how I related to God when I was younger. Uh, I remember one time I was at a youth camp, and uh, the speaker, uh, he asked in the middle of it, he said, hey, uh, it was right around when the movie Titanic came out, and he said, hey, if you've seen Titanic, raise your hand, and like every hand goes up in the room, and then he t- turns and he goes, shame on you, you need to repent of your sins, there is cursing and nudity, and, and all, as teenagers, we're like, oh man, we're going to hell, <laughs> We were so scared. Later on in the, the same talk, he asked, hey, if you saw Star Wars, raise your hand and nobody raised their hand. It's like, fool me once, shame on, you. Shame on me, fool me twice, you little trickster. Uh, but the truth is, is that the Bible doesn't really talk about what kind of movies we should and shouldn't watch. Uh, it doesn't teach us how to handle Netflix, uh, in fact, there's a lot of real-life scenarios that are relevant to someone living in 2021 uh, that we have to figure out that the Bible doesn't explicitly give instruction about. Uh, it doesn't talk about how to handle social media. It uh, doesn't talk about voting or how to deal with politics. doesn't talk about how we should uh, handle, uh, like, should we lease a car? Should we finance it? Should we pay cash? and. Uh, it doesn't address listening to secular music or whether or not it's a sin to own a cat. Uh, and sure, the, the Bible gives wisdom and guidance and uh, we can draw conclusions and have confidence about the conclusions uh, based on the principles that the Bible teaches. Uh, but when I was young in my faith and immature in my faith, I viewed this book, the Bible, as a rule book. And that's that's what I thought the purpose of this book was. And my view of God was that God was the rule maker and the rule keeper. And, and I don't think I'm alone in that thinking. And sure, there are some rules in this book and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I can assure you that the primary purpose of our Bible is not to be a rule book. The purpose in understanding that book is to help us understand and to hear from the God who wrote it. And ultimately, it teaches us how to follow and how to become more like Jesus. And uh, here's the good news is that the principles that we find in the Bible and the principles uh, that we find in the life of Jesus uh, is the same in 2021 as they were 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked this earth and when these words were written. So what I want to do today is I want to move our focus off of uh, the quote-unquote rules that we find in the Bible and move our focus to the person, Jesus. Uh, What are some things that Jesus did that we can do in our own life? Uh, Not focusing on the rules, but focusing on the way of life, the way of life. So I want to talk about four things that Jesus demonstrated for us. And we can talk about hundreds, but I just want to focus on four today to live more like Christ. Uh, The first one is this, is that Jesus continually communicated with God. He continually communicated with God. Uh, There's two things that absolutely fascinate me in Scripture. Uh, One is that God rested after creation. Uh, I was just, that was mind-blowing to me. It's, it's like he is God, the source of all power. Uh, the fact that he chose to rest had nothing to do with the fact that he was tired. He chose to rest more for uh, to establish the rhythms of life that he wanted his creation to follow. He was establishing a Sabbath. So that was always fascinating to me. But the second thing is that Jesus prayed. That, that was just like weird to me because Jesus was uh, God in flesh. If there was anyone who didn't have to pray, it would have been Jesus. Like, he, he was God in flesh. But I, I think Jesus prayed not because he had to, but because he loved to be close with his heavenly father. Uh, my daughter turned two years old in June, and she is Uh, quite the talker Uh, she's been talking in full sentences for quite a while and uh, she says phrases nonstop at this age Uh, two in particular one she'll ask dada want to color with me dada want to color like all day every day she just wants to color with me um and the other thing she'll ask too is dada what you doing Dada, what you doing? We could be driving like down the road for 30 minutes and she will ask a hundred times, Dada, what you doing? Oh, sweetie, I'm, I'm just driving. Dada, what you, like as if I got out of the car and I'm doing something different. She would repeat these over and over and uh, honestly, I love it so much. I love the fact that my daughter can now communicate with me and uh, she can tell me what she wants and she can ask me what I'm doing Uh, Just us having these little conversations It's just like the highlight of my day She loves communicating with me And I get so much joy from it as well Because I believe God, our Heavenly Father Gets even more joy when us, His creation Communicate with Him Uh, That's what prayer is in its most basic form It is communicating with God, our Heavenly Father now, I don't know how or why this happened, but somewhere along the way, we've made prayer complicated and we've made prayer formal. Uh, we, we've made it like as if we have to approach God a very specific way. And uh, you, we've all heard this before, someone who talks one way, but prays a way completely different. Like they're using words that they would never use in regular conversation. But it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, I would challenge you to communicate with God the way you would communicate with a heavenly, perfect Father. Uh, look at one of the many examples of how Jesus prayed. Uh, we're just going to read the first part, and we'll come back to the second part later on in the message. But Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, he cried out. Everything is possible for you. This, this term, Abba, is an Aramaic term that best is translated to the word Daddy. That's how Jesus communicated with his heavenly father. Not in this formal way, but in this personal, in this intimate way. Uh, I just want to encourage you to communicate to God the way you would communicate with a loving father. Now, I understand that not all of us can relate to that. Uh, Not everyone in this room had a loving father uh, as a child. Maybe uh, your, your relationship with your father is a strange or you just grew up never knowing your father, my encouragement to you is uh, to communicate even more, to communicate on, on a more regular basis. The more time you spend talking to God, the closer you'll get and the more you will learn to trust him over time. So the first thing Jesus did was he communicated regularly with God. The second thing is, is Jesus acknowledged the significance of the Holy Spirit. He acknowledged the significance of the Holy Spirit. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. Uh, I told you a few weeks ago that I've gotten really into road cycling this past year. Uh, I've been riding for probably eight years, and uh, I bought a decent bike about five years ago. But this past year, my brother-in-law, he bought a good bike as well. And we've been riding a lot, the two of us. And we joined uh, this group that rides um, on a regular basis every single week. Uh, they will we'll join for one or two rides during the week. And this past Wednesday, we did a group ride through Clarence. Uh, and in a group ride, what you do is you ride in a single file line called a pace line. Uh, I know I've aggravated some of you on the road before because we're like a little bit into the lane. Uh, but we ride into, in a single file line. And the purpose of doing it that way is the person who's in the very front does the majority of the work. And everyone behind the front person does less work. In fact, when you're draft, it's called drafting, when you're drafting someone behind you, you actually have to, uh, you only have to do 30, uh, you, you have to do 30% less power than the person who's in the very front. So you, you are trying 30% less harder to keep the same speed. It, it's amazing how it works and how much faster and how much farther you can gr- go in a group. Uh, so this past wednesday and by the way what you do is the person who's in the very front you you stay in the front for a mile or two and then you rotate to the back of the line and you just keep taking turns who is going to take the brunt of the wind Um, so this past wednesday we we set out for a ride through clarence um, and i ended up second in line which i do not like being like having to lead that early. Because I'm still trying to figure out what pace everybody's comfortable with. Because sometimes you go on a slower ride. Sometimes you go with really strong riders. Um, And so we, we set off. I'm second in line. The person who's in the front is a very experienced and fast rider. We're riding anywhere from 23 to 25 miles an hour on this part of the bike ride. So I'm second in line. And I'm like, oh, oh boy, <laughs> like he is setting the bar really high and I don't want to be the person that slows down the group. So as soon as he rotates to the back of the line, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm gonna keep up with this pace. So I, I start going as hard as I can. I keep that pace of 23 to 25 miles an hour for my two miles. And as soon as I rotate to the back of the line, I look down at my watch that shows my heart rate and it was 197 I, I mean, that's, that's around what my max heart rate is, and that's okay, but not in the first five miles of a long bike ride. Like, I, I know I'm in trouble at this point, so I, I know if I wanna finish this ride, I just have to, I have to stop pedaling for a minute, let my heart rate catch up, and then I'll, I'll just finish the ride on my own because by the time I, I, my heart rate lowered to something that's more reasonable, the rest of the group was a good 300 yards in front of me But all of a sudden, I realized my brother-in-law, who who happens to be one of the the strongest riders in the group, he turns around, he comes back to me. He said, Brian, get behind me. Like You can draft me. We'll catch up. And over the next 20 minutes or so, we slowly catch up to the group in front of us. But that was only possible because my brother-in-law let me draft behind him. See, drafting is something that you cannot see but you can feel it, you can experience it, and you can benefit from it. He created this invisible force so that I could go faster while also recovering my heart and that I would not be left behind. That is kind of like what the Holy Spirit does for a Christian. Now, the wind is not a perfect metaphor. In fact, there is no perfect metaphor for the Holy Spirit, but I hope it can help us understand just how the Holy Spirit can work in our lives, uh, before Jesus left his disciples, he promised them, and the promise extends to all Christians that the Holy Spirit will come and live in the heart of every Christian. The Holy Spirit will do things like guide us and uh, convict us and help us and provide wisdom and direction. Uh, he'll pray for us and he'll comfort us when we need comfort. See, although we don't see the Holy Spirit, we can feel him. We can experience him, and we can benefit from him. Uh, I've heard people say this before, and maybe you've thought this yourself, that it must have been so easy for the disciples to to live a God-honoring life. Like, they had Jesus walking beside them. They were learning from Jesus himself. It must have been so easy for them. But look at what Jesus told his disciples before he left in John 16. Jesus, to them, he says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Paraphrase, the Holy Spirit within you is better than Jesus beside you. The Holy Spirit within you is better than Jesus beside you. Jesus was adamant about the power of the Holy Spirit. But honestly, a, a lot of Christians live without ever recognizing or utilizing that power. It would be like if I were to go on a group bike ride, but I chose to ride three feet outside of the pace line and I would miss out on all the benefits of riding on a group. So the million dollar question is how do we do that? How do we live with the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, let me tell you what I've found works for me. Three things is to recognize, ask, and follow closely. To recognize that as a Christian, we do have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. To ask him for his power, for his direction, for his comfort, etc. And then the last thing is to follow closely. In that pace line riding, the closer I get to the person in front of me, the more benefit I receive. In fact, we ride so close that we're about six inches from front tire to back tire apart because the closer you are the more benefit you receive the same thing with god the closer you are to god the more you will experience the holy spirit so recognize it ask him and follow closely Uh, jesus he communicated he acknowledged the holy spirit the third thing is this is that jesus obeyed the will of his heavenly father uh, so we read this verse earlier, and we focus on the first part, but I, I want to read it again and focus on the second part. So back to Mark fourteen thirty six, Jesus says, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. So this is right before Jesus was crucified for our sins. He says, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Not, your, not my will, Father, but yours. Imagine if we prayed like this on a regular basis. If we boldly asked for our circumstances to change, but closed that request every time with the phrase, yet not my will, but yours, Father. For example, Father, I ask that you make this job opportunity work out in my favor, yet not my will, but yours, Father, I ask that you heal this relationship, yet not my will, but yours. Father, I ask that you heal this sickness, yet not my will, but yours. Father, I pray this specific candidate wins the election, yet not my will, but yours, Father. See, this is what praying will do for us. It will humble us, but it will also remind us that in comparison with God, our view is very narrow. We can only see a little bit of what's in front of us, a little bit of what's behind and what we're dealing with in the moment, but God sees a much bigger and a much broader picture of the world and our life. I, I honestly think Garth Brooks had pretty good theology when he said, when he thanked God for unanswered prayers. I, I think there's a lot to that. Look at what Jesus said in John 6:38. He said, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me not to do my own will. Jesus was always ready and willing to obey his Father's commands. Now, we talked earlier in the message about how the Bible is not meant to be primarily a rule book, but we can't ignore the fact that there are some commands in there. There are some things that ought to be obeyed, but here is where I see so many people get it wrong. In fact, this is how I've gotten it wrong in the past, it's, uh, it's the comparison of like, the difference between a country club and a family. Some people approach Christianity as if it's a country club, where to join a country club, you have to pay a lot of money, uh, you have to agree to a list of things, you sign a contract, and you have to agree to a list of rules, and if you break any of the rules at any time, they can kick you out of the club. And I've seen so many people approach Christianity like that. Like, if we mess up, if we sin, we're going to be kicked out of God's club. But Christianity is not like a country club. Christianity is like a family. See, when you're a child in a family, it costs you nothing, but it costs your parents everything. You're accepted, you belong. In a good family, you are loved unconditionally. And the rules do come. Every family has rules, but how you handle the rules has no effect on whether or not you belong to the family. You can mess up without being kicked out of the family. Because we will mess up. We will make mistakes. We will sin. But those things have no bearing on whether or not we are loved by Jesus. Think of it this way. We don't obey in order to be loved. We obey because we love. Right before Jesus promised his disciples the Holy Spirit, he makes a statement in John 14. It's our memory verse today. Why don't we read this one out loud together? Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. So we obey out of love, not for love. We obey because we love, not so that we are loved. So before we move on to the very final point of the message, I I wanna explain how and why this this gets hard for me personally. I'm the type of person who wants to have a complete understanding of anything before I act. Uh, For example, every car I've ever bought, by time I'm signing the papers for that car, I will know more about that car than the salesman will because I will watch hours of YouTube videos. I want to know every feature. I want to know every uh, good thing about the car, every complaint that people have. I want to know every hidden feature before I sign those papers. And, And if I'm being honest, this type of thinking will delay my obedience to God because if I don't understand what is being asked of me completely, I won't always obey right away. Check out the story in the Gospel of Luke that kind of illustrates the other side of this. It says, when he had, talking about Jesus, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. A a couple things to note. From This passage first is Peter was a professional fisherman That's what he did for a living. That's what he did every single day and Jesus was a carpenter But not only that Jesus tells Peter To to do this after a long difficult day where they tried all night to catch fish See if i'm in peter's shoes I may have a hard time obeying this like chances are peter knew when and where to fish Jesus, the carpenter's advice, probably didn't make any sense to Peter in this moment. But Peter, although the request made little or no sense to him, although he didn't fully understand what was being asked, he obeyed anyways. He says, if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And the results of this obedience, the the consequence of this obedience is that that they they caught so much fish that their nets began to break. They had to call another fisherman to help haul the fish back to shore. See, here's the truth. We won't understand everything God tells us to do. And honestly, if we did, it would require little to no faith. And the Christian life requires and is based on faith. Look at this definition in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's not a matter, whether or not we see it is not or ever the issue. Obedience is the issue. So the question is, will we obey when we don't understand? Uh, I love what Craig Rochelle famously said. He said, obedience is our responsibility, but the outcome is God's. So Jesus, he communicated continually with God. He acknowledged the Holy Spirit. He obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. And the fourth thing is this, is that he reached out to those considered hopeless and sinners. He reached out to those considered hopeless and sinners. Um, there's this prevalent thought, and maybe you've felt this way before, maybe you feel this way now, that we have to clean up our lives before we can have a relationship with God, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard things said like, uh, maybe if I invite someone to church, they'll say something like, oh, "I can't go to church. The place will burn down if I go to church," or maybe you felt like you can't get baptized because there's still some things you need to figure out and uh, you need to clean up your life a little bit. Uh, maybe you've thought Jesus would not ne- want, Jesus would never want anything to do. With someone like me. If only you knew the things that I've done, you would understand that Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with me. Let me try to explain the type of person that Jesus spent the majority of his time with. Early in Jesus' ministry, he was choosing his disciples who would be the ones that would follow and minister alongside of him. Jesus chose the unqualified, he chose the hopeless and the sinners to follow him. One of which was a man named Matthew who was a tax collector. Now it's kind of hard for us to understand uh, in our culture just how tax collectors were viewed 2,000 years ago, but tax collectors were kind of the epitome of evil. They openly stole from their own people. Uh, The only people that liked tax collectors were other tax collectors, and Caesar, who was the benefit of the taxes, but they openly stole with no shame from their own people, and they had the authority to do so. Tax collectors were universally despised by the people. They were a member of the elites, but they were universally despised. But not to Jesus. So Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Look at this in Mark two fifteen. It says later Levi or. Another name for Matthew, invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus's followers. See, Jesus was attracted to sinners, and sinners were attracted to Jesus. You want to know what type of reputation jesus had amongst those who didn't truly know jesus look at this reputation the son of man jesus came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners he was with them so often that he was being accused of being among them being one of them being a drunk and a glutton so back to the story we started out with this morning at my grandparents' house with the sign above the TV. If Jesus were in the room, would he watch this program with you? Based on what I know about Jesus, the answer is yes. Whether or not he would approve of the program, we can usually figure that out on our own. But would Jesus sit in the room with us? I believe Jesus would sit in whatever room we invite him to. No matter how messy our lives are, no matter how messy the room is, no matter what we are doing, if we invite him into the room, Jesus will always be in the room with us. Jesus will be as close to us as we let him. Jesus hung out with drunks, with gluttons, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with the worst types of sinners you can imagine. He was close to them and he served them And he loved and he served them unconditionally. There were several things that happened at the Last Supper, but two things I want you to pay attention to this morning. One is that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It was an act of service and humility and love. It was symbolic of the type of love and leadership that Jesus would always exemplify and always uh, ask that we would model in our own lives. But after he washed Jesus's, or after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, the second thing Jesus did was he, he predicted Judas's betrayal. Judas, as we learn in the gospel, uh, had sold Jesus out to the religious leaders, and this would lead to Jesus' crucifixion. And at the Last Supper, Jesus, he predicts it. He calls Judas out. But get this, Jesus, knowing all of this, still washed Judas's feet. Jesus never stopped loving Judas. He never stopped reaching out to Judas, the very man who would go on to betray Jesus to have him arrested and crucified. Jesus knowing it all along, Jesus still got down on his knees and he washed Judas's feet. Why? Because Jesus's love is unconditional. You can never outrun the love of Jesus. I believe there are some here in this room or watching online that maybe you feel hopeless right now. Maybe you feel like what you've done in the past, the things that you've been a part of, that Jesus could never love you. Jesus could never accept you. That you have to jump through all these hoops to be in a relationship with him. I just wanna encourage you and remind you that Jesus loves you unconditionally. There is nothing you could ever do to make him love you more or less. His love for you is perfect. And not only that, not only does Jesus love us unconditionally and he he serves us, but he died for us so that we in the middle of our sin can still have a relationship with him. We're gonna take communion in just a moment, but first I, I wanna give anyone here who's never started a relationship with Jesus, who's never made that commitment to Jesus to just accept his love, I want to give you a chance to do that this morning. So with every head bowed out, eyes closed, if you've never started a relationship with Jesus or maybe you've you've strayed for so long and today's the day that you're going to just accept his love again, would you pray something like this in your heart? Pray something like, God, I accept your love today. I don't fully understand it. I don't fully understand the Bible, but what I do believe is that you love me despite my choices, despite my sin. I believe that you you died on the cross for me and you rose again. So God, today I accept your love and I ask that uh, you come into my heart. God, I accept the gift of the Holy Spirit, our advocate. I pray that uh, you would just walk alongside of me God, I know I'm not going to get everything right, but I want to have a relationship with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. With every head bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you today, if you made that decision, would you just raise your hand? I just want to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand acknowledging that I made that decision today? Anyone here in this room, just slip it up and you can slip it right back down. Thank you. Father, I thank you so much for your love, the unconditional love love, the fact that you still washed Judas's feet. I, I pray that the, the truth would sink into our lives. God, I thank you for anyone who made that decision to follow you today. God, that you would just move in their life in a way that they could never explain outside of something supernatural. So God, we love you and we worship you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're gonna take communion. Uh, When you came in, you should have received one of the communion cups. There's a little uh, wafer on the top part. He would take that out. So Jesus, after washing his disciples' feet, uh, he broke bread and he said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread. the same way he took the cup. He said, this represents my blood, which will be shed for you. Take and drink this in remembrance of me. Would you stand with us as we continue to worship this morning?